So uh, welcome everybody to a new episode of uh, The Solar Journey. Uh, today we have uh, Christian Breyer as, a, as our guest. Welcome, Christian. It's a pleasure to discuss with you, Thorsten. So let me just briefly introduce uh, Christian. So he's uh, currently a professor of solar economy in Finland. Uh, he is with the uh, Lapin Ranta Lahti University of Technology, in short, LUT. And uh, he focuses on uh, research and teaching solar economy, energy scenarios and their market mechanisms. And before that, he was a managing director and scientific director of the uh, Rainer Lemoine Institute in Germany, in Berlin. And uh, this institute does research on how mankind can get to 100% renewables, uh, how we can manage the energy transition. Uh, he holds a PhD on uh, economics of hybrid photovoltaic power plants. Uh, he also worked in the solar industry as in the R&D and market development department of QCells, a former still world market leader in solar cell manufacturing and solar plant engineering. And this is actually where we met, Christian. Um, when was that? A few years ago, 2000? Mm, roughly 10 years ago from now. 10 years ago, yeah. Yeah. And uh, he's, on top of that, a co-founder of the Desert Tech Foundation, uh, engaged in the photovoltaic power systems program of the International a Energy Agency and uh, chairman of for renewable energy of the Energy Watch Group. And uh, he has published more than 250 scientific papers and about 20 books or book chapters, major reports as author, co-editor and contributor. So again, warm welcome, Christian. Um, I personally, uh, I would call you the, the oracle for, for the future of renewables in, in Europe. I don't know about the world, but possibly also that. Um, I don't know anyone uh, who's got that... Uh, focus on on that subject solar economy who, who in the world would you regard as a working on your eye level and who 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 would you admire for for that kind of research you also do who do you look up to in your area to be honest as a researcher you always work or you always stand on the shoulder on the shoulders of the giants before you so and as a researcher in the end you in the very end, you, you add a small piece of insight to what had been all available. Yeah. Uh, but maybe answering your, 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 your question uh, in more detail, I would take a kind of a broader perspective. Because nowadays it's easy to be for a sustainable world. However, where this really, the real giant started, it had been a complete different world. So just think back to, to, to the 1960s when Rachel Carson wrote a book called The Silent Spring, where finally all the birds died due to chemicals all around. Okay, nowadays we, 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 we accelerate the process with dying insects and due to that a huge loss of birds. Mm. But that was a kind of an initial step to get huge non-governmental organizations like Greenpeace and others in the consequence founded. So these mm -hmm. are the real giants. Uh, yeah. Or then in the 70s with the Club of Rome, the limits to growth 
So where we really understood for the first time, we cannot go for an everlasting exponential growth. And maybe that's in a follow-up question. Uh, what does it mean for renewables? Uh, but now coming closer to solar economy, the first who really sketched out what solar economy means was Hermann Scheer, finally a politician with background yeah. in social sciences. He wrote a book uh, now more than 20 years ago and in the English version, the title of the book is Solar Economy. So, and okay. it was really sketched out what it really means. But to be honest, the real triumph uh, from the scientific point of view had been the person practically no one knows. It's Be uh, Bent Sørensen. He's from Denmark. Okay. And he published in the mid 70s, the first 100% renewable energy research article uh, in a full analytical way. <laughs> So mm -hmm. and in, even in the 90s, 1990s, uh, such analysis for the entire world. And it took more, uh, more than 15 years that a second researcher redid the job. So he, he was obviously half a generation or, or even more than that ahead of the rest of the planet. So then are the real giants. What okay. we nowadays do is just to do it better what already exists. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Interesting, interesting. So solar economy, Hermann Scheer, you think uh, um, chiseled that name? Um, he defined the, that time of the, that department of research or activity as the first person? Yeah, to be honest, it's not only research in the... Uh, in, 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 uh, in social science or in, 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 in psychology, uh, we know that in the very end, you have only a few persons defining a new field. Yeah. And they have maybe a visionary power with new ideas. And if these ideas are really good, then others may will understand that and then follow them and then spread the idea uh, to society. And without such visionary power, there are no followers. Yeah. And, and obviously, Hermann Scheer had been one of the very first really thinking on that. I, I, I would not say that everything is 100% perfect, what he ever said, yeah. so I'm far from that, but the core of everything is great. But of course, this is just the visionary power to get started. Yeah. In the end, of course, uh, it has to be elaborated. It has to be discussed in the societal discourse uh, that really uh, a broad society with various stakeholders can check it from their individual perspective so that finally it's a kind of a societal common sense to get it executed. Yeah. Uh, a kind of a transition in society. And of course, we should not forget to mention such giants like uh, Hans-Josef Feld, who finally together with Hermann Scheer in Germany 20 years ago, by the way, roughly 20 years ago now, yeah. uh, it yeah. introduced the feed-in tariff law in Germany, which was a copy-paste law for more than 100 countries and spreading renewables around the planet uh, on a very clever, innovative idea. And the innovative idea is uh, we have a simple law, in the beginning a simple law, then it was destroyed later on by opponents, but anyway, a simple law that everyone can contribute to a revolution to get a sustainable energy system. And I think this is a great invention from a political field, from a societal point of view, and finally also from a legal point of view, because it enables everyone to be part of energy revolution, not only the usual suspects with large utility companies or others. Yeah, excellent. Let me come, thanks a lot for that. Um, let me come briefly back to your professorship. So uh, 
that is uh, co-funded by uh, a company. It's called Fortum. And they are also engaged in the renewable energy business. So how, how do you interact with that, uh, with that company? Um, how, how do you, do you make sure that your, your science is not influenced by their, their interests? Yeah, uh, it was just a strategic outcome of a, yeah. how to say restructuring pro, uh, process in in Fortum. Fortum is the largest uh, power utility in Finland. Yeah. They said, okay, it will go towards uh, fossil-free generation. Uh, renewables will play a huge role. Yeah. Uh, they called it also solar economy, but from mm -hmm. a physical point of view, so meaning all renewables, so wind, solar, hydropower, yeah. bioenergy, even geothermal energy, but of course we know it's not really physically from the sun, but all others are finally physically from the sun. Yeah. And then they thought, okay, what they really need is uh, young engineers joining the company. They should have really new, different ideas in their mindsets and maybe better during their studies they have someone planting them really how to say thinking out of the box ideas okay uh, or confronting them early in their studies uh, so that they have more how to say revolutionary people within their organization so growing also how to say with the newly hired people so yeah. that was uh, one of their key ideas uh, it was just a kind of a starting point so i started here Uh, six years ago, this was a contribution for the first four years. Uh, yeah. So this is already part of the past. Okay. Um, but of course, we have a, a good collaboration and maybe yeah. the best what can be named for that is it's, it's ATIP PV. This is the European Technology and Innovation Platform for PV where uh, key European technology, economics and, and, and legal stakeholders for photovoltaics from industry from research uh, build a kind of a network for dissemination and key topics also for um, advising European Commission and one of my closest co-workers there uh, is, is, is from Fotum is there the responsible solar manager so also on that basis okay. we have a really yeah. really good um, yeah. productive collaboration so do I understand correctly? So basically, Fortum is like a, a conventional, used to be a conventional um, utility, and they now decided a few years ago to uh, move to uh, accept, tolerate, incorporate renewable energies, and they used the sponsorship of uh, the, your professorship and then uh, those new students, those graduates, to uh, transform the their internal culture, let's say, mindset. Is that correct? Yes, maybe let's, let's make it a bit broader for, yeah. for generally larger European utilities. These are typically companies founded many decades ago in the past or founded due to mergers, depending yeah. on what countries we are looking for. But all of them are large institutions, large companies, several thousands, ten thousands of employees. And if a kind of a corporate DNA of such large companies has to be changed, it's a process of rather 20 than only 10 years. Uh, but we have now more and more of the large utilities in Europe. They they really realized coal phases out, even even gas will phase out, nuclear phases out, and whenever a large utility and of course there are more, so we we, we know them in Italy, in Spain, in Germany, in Netherlands, Sweden, 
uh, they all come to the conclusion, okay, if you have once mentally accepted that the, the previous nuclear or fossil business is just phasing out, then they're mentally open-minded to what are now the new challenges, mm. what are the new opportunities. And then suddenly they realize, okay, the world in the end will be electrified. Mm. We need electrification for heating. We need electrification for the transport sector. We need electrification for industry. We need electrification for steel via hydrogen and other options. Yeah. And then suddenly they realize their market may grow by a factor of four or five, even in Europe. Yeah. And then suddenly they, they, they get really clever, new creative ideas. However, I realized that only with companies when they really stopped the old business. So the old stranded assets in fossil and nuclear fuels, they have to be maybe spin off in companies which finally just they're ramped down. So it still may take 10, 20 years as for example, coal and nuclear exit in, in Germany with coal exit still close to 20 years from now. But in the very end, if this is already legally done, then they're open-minded for new opportunities. Yeah. And I think this is a process all these companies go through earlier or later, yeah. at, at least if they want to survive as a company. Yeah, <laughs> they better do. But let's step a, a few years. Um, you, you used to work as a tax advisor. You've got a, some sort of a degree in business and then you switched somehow to science and then to solar. How, how did that all happen and why, why did it happen? Yeah, I started a bit earlier with my, how to say, professional career. I worked yeah. as a tax advisor assistant. Yeah. So in my early years, and it was okay, it was nice. You can, you can how to say, learn, uh, earn your living expenditures. Yeah. But in the end, I missed a bit the what would be the impact finally, what I would do daily. Yeah. And then I decided, okay, uh, let's try something technical. And at that time, I read the first books of Herman Scheer. Okay. And then I thought, okay, why not? If it's a growing, interesting market, so still fully having the mindset of, with, a, with a business background, I uh, thought, okay, let's go for that. And I got a really great, how to say... Advice from a teacher, Christian, you typically start very fundamentally with all the topics, so maybe you, do, you should do the same with energy. And then the advice was maybe you should start studying physics, so what I finally did. But it's a big jump, uh, right, from a tax advisor to start study science, right? Yeah, in the very end, I was young at that time. So if you're young and if you spend a few years in the field, which you may find out three, four or five years later, it was not the best decision in your, in your life before. But if you did already two degrees in your first professional career, then the way back is not so complicated if you're still young. Okay. So I thought, okay. okay, if you're young, you can go for some risk taking. If it, if, if it works, it's fine. If not, you know your fallback options, so it's okay. Um, but I guess the advice was really great to really try to understand the nature of energy. Okay. This is finally all about, and that's, of course, studying physics is great, but when I had been at university, technical university, I immediately realized that I had been in many courses about uh, engineering energy. So in the end, it was then also a degree as energy systems engineer, because it has to be applied. So if you are a physicist, you have to be very careful that it has still to do with reality, so you can live in theoretical spheres. 
Yeah. And uh, being an engineer also, that helps, of course, much more to look for the real solutions. So this okay. in the end is needed. But so, but basically, you right from the start, you had the the vision you wanted to work in the solar economy, right? Really, the the economical part of it, rather. So the the science engineering part was just a stepping stone to understand the the details of the technology. Let's put it this way, and then, but you already had a long term view to work in that work more on the economical part of it. I would say it was more a kind of a journey to find out where are the fields you want to be. So a journey, I like that. Yeah, yeah. yeah <laughs> if you're still in your how to say late twenties, you can walk a bit around and try and what you want to do. Yeah. And if you had a study in physics, then it's not so surprising if you think on renewables that that photovoltaics might be something you want to test. Because mm. uh, to be really good in photovoltaics, you should learn or know quite a lot about solid matters quantum physics may even help there uh, a lot of electrical engineering helps for pv so i would say it's a kind of a natural step uh, but when i did this i still with business in background i thought organic photovoltaics that's the that's the field i want to go for Mm. Um, starting with an emerging idea, maybe then wire startups to commercialization. But then I noticed rather fast, this is a long way for this technology. And maybe a more larger established field may bring me further. So then I spent a year with concentrating solar thermal power plants, uh, which learned me then the power of crystalline photovoltaics, which was quite interesting. This was not intended, not expected by myself. Uh, but I came across the growth rates and learning rates of, of finally crystalline photovoltaics. And this brings down already 10, 15 years ago, but still today brings down the cost extremely fast. Uh, and then again, a bit by accident, I moved again from concentrating solar thermal power to finally crystalline photovoltaics uh, in joining Q-cells, uh, still responsible there for what was called technology screening at that time. So all what was not really already established in the company, still organic photovoltaics and other topics, but that taught me more and more what is really the power of photovoltaics and finally crystalline silicon photovoltaics, which is still today by, I don't know, 97% the world market dominating technology. Yeah. And it's really, really how to say powerful. But yeah. of course, in the end, it really helps to look left and right hand side, a bit forth and a bit backwards, maybe understand it more as a journey Maybe that also brought me in the in the end back as a researcher, because if you are still on a kind of a, or feel yourself on a journey, then you have to look a bit around what is left, what is right, what brings you mm. further, what is a good solution. In the end, that photovoltaic is so relevant and so dominant is by accident. It's 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 finally a very low cost technology, and the sun shines everywhere. Yeah, and that makes it super attractive for an energy transition. If yeah. it would be another technology, then maybe we would talk on another technology. Yeah. But solar photovoltaic has this outstanding bright future. And of course, it's relevant to understand it better and go deeper and deeper and really to see how to finally get it, how to say, yeah. utilized for, 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 for mankind, for all yeah. of us. So how did you end up in Finland? I mean, 
you just mentioned the the sunshines forever. Finland is not known for lots of sunlight. So why is why 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 Finland? Why does Finland have a professorship on on solar? Why is it not? Why couldn't you go to Spain, Italy, uh, Australia, where there's a lot more resource, which is sunlight in this case? Yeah. What life what life teaches us is you have to take the opportunities which are available. Yeah. So there are no other options. Your, your dreams and wishes when it's possible to fulfill yeah. it. Uh, finally, there was this 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 open position to go for solar economy research. Yeah. And then was the question, okay, uh, let's do it now and, sure. and here in yeah. Finland. So or it, it, follow a dream which may never come true. Yeah. So then follow the dreams which are available. Uh, I'm sure. Yeah. I never regretted this decision. Yeah. Um, so are there any other professorships on solar economy somewhere on this planet? Or is that... I'm not sure whether they have this name, but of course there are several colleagues doing very similar topics. Okay. So typically they have done professorships in thermodynamics, professorships in physics, of course, in engineering, uh, doing similar topics. But in the end, what what how to say with my peers, I would say what we have in common is try to find pathways from a holistic approach for an entire energy system. How to get from the today's, let's really call it direct energy system to a fully sustainable energy system. So first of yeah. all, how it looks like, how to get there and what are the differences for different constraints, boundary conditions saying as a, as a natural scientist. So finally in, in all different parts in the world, there are different resources, more wind, yeah. more solar, more hydropower, mm. uh, more stable climate, really harsh climates. Uh, what are finally the solutions? But in the end, it's always built up from the same components. So yeah. if you have several dozens of components, you can always build up a sustainable energy system that's yeah. not so complicated yeah. in the end. Yeah. So the key motivation for solar economy to establish a solar economy is uh, the uh, protecting the environment or protecting the resources that mankind and many living creatures uh, including plants need to to keep growing or to keep living on this planet as they do today very simple question how much are you convinced that um, climate change is man-made that it's a threat and not just changing things and we can cope with it in a, in in some way we just figure it out right so why do we need to fight climate change in the end, it's a simple matter of fact that it's man-made, and this is yeah. known since decades. Yeah. Uh, we know it now by 99.9%, okay? Yeah. Uh, but there are scientific publications since 10, 20 years. They say us with a very, very high uh, level of, 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 of insights that this is man-made. But you can go back. There are books German families had in their shelves, bookshelves in the 1960s. The book is called, translated to English, Our Blue Planet. And there is a chapter in the middle of the book written from a former rocket scientist who moved with Lena von Braun from Germany after Second World War to the US. And the book was written in the early 60s. And it's very simply explained in that book. There is an increasing share of CO2 concentration in atmosphere. It had been these early measurements from Mauna Loa on Hawaii. Uh, he simply wrote there, this is due to burning fossil fuels. 
and as we know from a greenhouse gas, it will heat up the planet. Written in the mid 60s. Mid 60s. So this we, is 60 years learned, ago. Yeah, 60 yeah, years ago. All what we learned from that time is we understand it with more details, but there is no further fundamental insight. It's so how can so how can still people? Yeah. So how can still so many politicians, big guys, small guys, stand up and say it's it's not man-made and it doesn't happen and uh, let's just keep going. Uh, Albert Einstein said there are <laughs> two things which, uh, which are unlimited in the world. It's the stupidness of people and the universe. And for the, for the last, for the latter, he's not really sure. Maybe that is one explanation. Uh, but the second explanation is we have enormous uh, vested interest. So there are huge capital stocks invested in non-sustainable infrastructure, technology, fossil business. And as all organizations or organisms want to survive, also companies and organizations want to survive, and they simply fight against the survival mode of, 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 of mankind, of our civilization for short-term profits. Mm -hmm. So this is the second reason. And if you are a large, powerful organization, then you spend huge amounts of money to secure your next quarter's profits. And whether it destroys the existence of others, maybe not relevant in this small short-term optimization. And this is also known since decades. It's similar to tobacco and to other industries. They destroy our lives. And in the end, we people have to decide with our elected or due to whatever reasons and what regimes brought into force politicians that our suicide mode ends. So yeah. it's, we, we have it in our own hands that it stops. We, in, at least in democracies, we go to elections and we decide on our own who will lead us and who not. <laughs> it's very yeah. simple. And it, it's known from everyone uh, or typically from politicians, whether they fight for fighting climate change or whether they're not so much interested in the topic. And it's our own decision whom we, whom we vote. Yeah. So fast forward 20 years, uh, who's going to win? Is there, will there be something like a winner? Or yeah, it will, be, it will be a renewable energy system because what we know from from humans in the end, and of course that we have to accept from ourselves, we are African savanna animal. And that means in our inner brain, we are, it's, it's very clear we still act in this mode. And, and in our current COVID-19 crisis, we can experience that very well again. Uh, if we look into the eyes of the, of the lion, we will survive. And that means if there is a virus around, which can immediately bring our health system into collapse so that many, many people are on a major threat and finally will die, then we are able to enormous drastic measures globally, so we, immediately in all countries. So are we uh, already we, looking into the eye of the tiger or when are we looking? Some say for, for, corona, for the last yes, 20 years. Yeah, for, it's, it's, for the for the renewables, I mean. No, no, no. For the renewables, it's different because the point is to look into the eyes of the lion means we need a, a immediate immediate threat, threat. Yeah. in front of us. So it has to be our threat, really threat now. And we had it ten years ago with the financial crisis, where the global financial system had been maybe only one weekend close to a global financial meltdown. 
and then global cooperation among countries within one weekend was not a big deal. Mm. As humans were able to that, Corona crisis is very similar. The problem with climate change is, uh, this is unfortunately the other part of our human nature. What is not uh, immediate threat in front of us, we delay to the next day. So then we are like a frog in the boiling water. We prefer to get boiled. And this unfortunately is the problem with climate change. Due to that, we don't go for immediate actions because many, many, many people more will die uh, due to climate change if we continue the present pathways than in theory could have been ever died with COVID-19. The only problem is with climate change, this is so so a complex topic. It takes many years. It's not what, what something what happens within a few weeks or months or maybe one, two years. It's something which 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 requires the care of one or two generations uh, mm. to really take care of. And as humans, we're not really made for that. Uh, luckily, the young generation is different. So with Fridays for Future, the, the kids finally, juveniles, the very young adults, uh, went on the streets demonstrating that they don't want to lose their future. And luckily for this generation, it's the threat immediate in front of them because they lose their future right now. So they fight for the change. And I'm very sure as soon as it's allowed again to be in larger crowds on the streets, Fridays for Future will be back because currently yeah. the existence is burned. And this is the best, how to say, pain in the ass of the decision makers to get the system changed. Because what we already know from research, a fully sustainable energy system is simply the least cost option. Mm. So to continue okay. our currently wrecked system based on nuclear and fossils simply cost us much more. So that is a very inconvenient truth for the current decision makers because uh, the system has to be switched and it will cost less as a consequence. Yeah. Plenty of stuff there. Um, we'll come back to that later, I think. Um, so you do research. So you uh, look at the solar economy, you model the new energy environment, um, you model the energy transition. How, how do you do that? Hmm. There are two ways of answering. <laughs> so the first way of answering is, of course, we, we, we look for a sustainable energy trans transition. So this is yeah. what, we, what we do and how to get there. The first part of the answer would be tears, pain, and sweat. <laughs> so this is really okay. very hard work. Yeah. Uh, but to be more positive in the end, I would say it's, it's passion, let's call it love, and let's call it endurance. Because yeah. uh, what uh, with, with, with my team members, what we do, so it's a team of 15 to 20 really highly committed and passionate researchers in my team, but also with peers and other research teams around the world. Uh, what we all have in common to really find low-cost pathways to fully sustainable energy systems yeah. and in the end how it's technically done is you have to understand technologies uh, you have to know their their technical limitations their resource limitations you have to know the cost and all how these parameters can develop over time uh, put everything together in what we call a model so a computer model uh, then you need acceptable computational power. And then what I meant with tears, pain, sweat, and passion to get a good outcome of all these parameters in good models with acceptable 
computational limitations, but also power. And in the end, what it delivers, so this is the technical part, but in the end, it delivers a simple storyline. The storyline is where we start today, where we have to go to, and what are the measures from a technical economic point of view to be there. But of course, it requires enormous societal conviction and common sense to go for the decision making, to go for the execution. Because in the end, the today system has to be what we call renewed. So in industry, it's called restructuring. So maybe that's 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 the more realistic world. It has a word. It has to be restructured what we have and go for the new decisions. And it's not always that easy. So it takes, in best cases, let's say twenty years roundabout if we really take it serious to have a fully sustainable energy system. Yeah. So your input is a lot of research. You study the technologies. You have uh, around fifteen people. And you have a computer. Do you need some super special computer? How complex is the is the model, um, or is it is, is it like yeah, you can run it on your laptop, or what, what sort of how complex uh, is such kind of model? Is is it no, just give laptop? It. Laptop is not any more convenient. So laptop okay, is nice a, for a, writing papers, yeah. for structuring data, and for sending out emails. No, yeah. the uh, finally it's calculated, but still on simple computer servers i would say so yeah. so we have six servers the standard server has 50 cpus and a few hundred gigabytes of memory yeah. so it's of course more than a standard laptop computer but in the end we have 500 maybe 500 600 cpus all together uh, two terabytes of memory of course it's large uh, but of uh, on these kind of systems, we we run 20, 15 jobs always in parallel. So it's still modular, I would say. With a supercomputer, we could do more. So, of course, we have limitations. We have very complex systems. So a standard system, it's what what, what typically students learn in, in grade 9, 10. You have a linear equation system. So there you learn it with three, four equations. You have three, four variables, and then you get solutions for these three, four variables. That in principle will be two, linear optimization. The only difference is we have 50 million variables and 50 million constraints and dozens of millions of equations. But in the end, it's a linear equation system what we try to solve, and of course, in a stable way. And then how long would those uh, 50 times X uh, CPUs run to get you a new model? Is it like you have to wait a month or how how, how fast do they churn out a new it model? It depends. So finally, we try to decouple the complexity. So yeah. it's always the question what needs to be fully coupled in one single simulation run? What can be decoupled without losing relevant information? So this is maybe then more the the special techniques you learn on the way to be fast because you have always the limitation of what is your maximum com- computational limits and what is the available time you have to go for simulation runs. Yeah. But for very complex simulation studies, it can take two months to get step-by-step step right. through. Yeah. Um, then, of course, you should have not done a major error because if you have 100 <laughs> technologies, we have 100, 120 technologies in our model. If yeah. only one technology has one major parameter wrong, your entire results can be wrong. Yeah. So just take, take, take solar photovoltaics. We, we spend a huge effort that we have the right numbers for, for photovoltaic, for solar energy. What are the, really the costs? Now take the models which are, what are used for 
um, the IPCC report. They're used for so-called so integrated assessment models. And when you compare the costs, what is projection on the reality from today's understanding to what they use in these integrated assessment models, what they're finally used for the IPCC, then by 2050, there is a difference of a factor of four to five. Mm -hmm. So that means one single technology, they have by a factor four or five wrong, but the consequences, what are the energy system analysis results of these integrated assessment models, finally, all their major conclusions are massively distorted, to be polite. Uh, more in a plain language, I would say their major conclusions are simply wrong. Uh, and the reason is one component is, is, is fully distorted. So due to that, it's a really very, I would say, responsible job to really take care that all the relevant technologies you take into account in such a model are really describing what we could say is a realistic description, first of all, of reality, but then also uh, projection into the future. So this mm. requires a lot of hard work and finally also experience so to yeah. really know the pitfalls around. Yeah. So you must have a lot of uh, IT engineers, specialized IT engineers to set up those models and, and uh, I guess research uh, students who uh, analyze those technologies and give those parameters to the to the model right and then that's a mix of, uh, yeah. of of mindsets and people so if you have really tough engineers uh, electrical engineers physicists they're all used to go for programming okay so and in the end of course what is our key requirement that people have a technical background to really understand technologies yeah. so engineers electrical engineers mechanical engineers process engineers so these are the most backgrounds yeah. i have in my team but there are also people with background in geology and in mining and then they specialize on geothermal energy for example or on underground energy storage so this is then a question of specialization of course there are chemists or, or physicists so if you have such people in the team, it's great. However, it will be also quite interesting to have more people with industrial engineering, because then they have more of the economics on the forefront. Uh, it really depends in the end, diversity is relevant. So to have yeah. people from different countries with different backgrounds, different cultures, uh, different studies, to get really different ideas integrated. Because if you have to cover so many technologies and we, 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 we do global local studies, the country studies, we just recently published it for Bangladesh, for Western Africa, then it's better to have a team member who is really from that region. Yeah. Uh, and if you talk on geothermal energy, it's better to have a geologist in your team. Yeah. And that of course helps to get things a bit better done. Yeah. So, so what, what do you, so you've got this model and you set up these models for single countries or continents or the whole world. So what's the, the regional scope of your, of your models? I always say it's, again, maybe my, my business background, it's like a SAP software. So you have okay. a general framing software, but then you decide to what specific application you want to apply it. Yeah. And this is exactly what it's about. So it can describe energy transition. Uh, and you can decide whether you want to go for a country, for a continent, for the planet, or maybe sub-level of a country. So yeah. we just, right now, we are very close to have a report out uh, where we study from a major country on the planet how to get 
the capital run on a sustainable energy basis and we talk on a capital with several tens of millions of inhabitants so in that city it's simply not possible and then you have to find a way how the surrounding states in that larger country uh, can support the capital so mm -hmm. and this is we all do with the same model you can apply for that and then finally it's what is the data what are the assumptions you need weather data you have demand data so how energy demand is there and then you finally zoom in zoom out whatever you want to study so Honestly, if we would get a nice project from Elon Musk, we would also do such study for having sustainable energy supply on the moon or on the Mars. For our model, it would be possible. That would okay. be not the problem. Yeah. But currently, we limit it to our planet and, and really zoom down on a subnational level. So when we do a country study, we have countries typically in five, seven, nine regions. So we, we modeled Finland in seven regions, Iran in nine regions. Currently, we model Indonesia in eight regions, and then we are, let's say, on a state level, on a subnational level, but we also have papers on a global level. So, but it's yeah. always done with the same model, and finally, what data is applied. Yeah. So I'm going to call Elon Musk uh, just after this uh, chat. Um, that would be great. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you just published a, a new report together with Solar Power Europe, so uh, where you looked at Europe, the energy transition in Europe. Um, And uh, the key outcome is uh, how we can get to 100 renewables in Europe by 2050. So what's, what's the, what are the key findings? How much does it cost? What do you want to share with our uh, listeners on, on, on that report? Why should they look I at it? Yeah. Maybe to make it short, so first of all, everyone can download the report. So it's open access. That's the most yeah. helpful for, uh, how to say, facilitating societal discourse. Yeah. But the message is uh, 100% renewables in 2050 cost less than to have a slowed down energy transition where we have still greenhouse gas emissions in 2050, where we have a higher nuclear share, they simply cost more money. So it's mm -hmm. a kind of a least cost option to have the job done as it's announced by a commissioner or uh, von der Leyen uh, to have the European Green Deal. So finally, this is the least cost option for Europe. Uh, however, maybe the more challenging question is, what does it mean if it will be faster? And we have finally in the report three scenarios, what we call the moderate scenarios, 100% renewables by 2050. Uh, but we have a leadership scenario that also tells us 100% renewables by 2040, which is 20 years from now, would be possible. Uh, it will be well affordable and it would not cost much more. And this is very close to what Fridays for Future finally claims that in the end, within 10 years time from now, we have eaten up the carbon budget, if you can even say it in that cynical way, uh, to still remain in a 1.5 degree Celsius world. Uh, so Fridays for Future finally claims within 10 to 15 years, a full transition to a sustainable energy system should be done. At least for 20 years period, we have shown it can be done and it's well affordable, in particular for a rich region like Europe. And what we learned from our global studies, if you can do it in Europe, you can do it everywhere on the planet, because in practically all regions in the world, it will be easier, faster and lower in cost than in Europe. And the simple reason is Europe is, is, is in, the, in, the, in, the, in the farther north, where solar energy is good, but in the rest of the world, it's typically better. So it's lower in cost there. 
but Europe has excellent access also to wind energy. So finally, the combination of solar and wind, this is also the key outcome of the study. We can go for the transition and maybe we are the first in this major study uh, that the lion's share also in Europe in the end will be solar energy, solar photovoltaic, and the simple reason it's low in cost. So, and even the total energy transition you said is um, or the, the least cost. What do you mean by that? Even if we would stick to the conventional um, energy um, systems, we, it would be more costly. So if we would stick to nuclear and coal, this would be more costly. This is what you mean? Yeah, it's super simple. So a new nuclear power plant, if you do everything perfectly, costs you 100 to 120 euros per megawatt hour. So this is the electricity generation cost of a newly built nuclear power plant. The world record published last week was in Abu Dhabi for 13.5 US dollars per megawatt hour, so 12 euros uh, per megawatt hour. Now let's say in Europe for it solar. may cost yeah. a factor of two. So then it costs maybe if everything is more challenging in Europe, then it would cost 25 euros per megawatt hour in Europe electricity from solar photovoltaic for the same conditions as they got this large photovoltaic power plant in Abu Dhabi. Um, and this is only a quarter, even less than a quarter of a new nuclear power plant. And then is the question, what is the cost to have a 100% renewable energy system stable in all hours of a year? And then you end up with numbers, not more than 50 euros a megawatt hour. So to have a fully sustainable energy system for all hours of a year cost you half or less than half of a new nuclear power plant, which is anything else than stable for the electricity demand because it can only provide a base generation electricity outcome. But during daytime, we need twice the electricity than during nighttime. So we have a kind of a variable load or demand over the day. So we need a mix of different opportunities. And in the end, a renewable system, a solar system is simply lower in cost. And you can do the same simple equations with fossil energy. Coal and gas is simply expensive. So a new gas-fired power plant costs you 50, 60 euros a megawatt hour, all cost included, but still CO2 costs zero. But we know uh, the CO2 price for a 1.5 to 2 uh, Celsius, degree Celsius world, is 180, 200 euros per ton CO2, and then a gas-fired power plant costs you 70, 80, maybe 90 euros per megawatt hour. But if you get a 100% renewable system for 50 euros per megawatt hour built from now on in the next 20, 25 years, then just investing in fossil and nuclear burns uh, financial resources, which in particular after or now after the COVID-19 crisis, we simply do not have any more. We did not have these resources before. We even have less resources now. So all new investments have to be fully sustainable. Otherwise, they're a burden for the welfare of our societies. So um, governments all over the world now think about how can they can restart uh, the economy. And uh, um, many now want to have this money spent in into renewables right to to um to start a to start the solar economy on a grand scale right in all over the world do you think mankind or single countries will use this opportunity to spend this money which has to be invested wisely or 
what, what's your bet? Let's say, uh, let's look at France and, uh, and Germany and the US. How, how, how will the um, prime ministers decide? How, where will the money go? Support, yeah, re restart the old, let's say old economy or start the, put the money into solar? No, it's not that easy. Um, at least what we can see in COVID-19 crisis right now is that right-wing populistic countries show a very poor performance. There most people die. Uh, countries which lay more effort and common sense and discussing what we call open society, they do the much better decisions. Um, and I guess it will be the same in the energy system. So some countries will go for more clever solutions. So they will reinvest in what we call a green deal, whether it's in the US or in Europe. Um, but not all countries will go for such bright ideas. And when I should bet on single countries, let's see. So Germany may have good preconditions, but the coal exit until 2038 is a very, very poor common sense. Coal has to be stopped in less than 10 years time. Everyone knows that. So whether we do this good ideas, I don't know. Uh, many claim that, for example, ramping up again the automotive industry should be done with sustainable concepts. Let's see whether we get a push for electric vehicles, which might be forced to use only renewable electricity, because this will be a really clever idea, or whether old diesel cars are pushed into the market, worsening the situation. So let's see. If I would have a wish or could have a wish, only sustainable solutions which could be part of a really serious green deal should be supported uh, when it comes to infrastructure investments and others should really use this major economic how to say turning point to make everyone clear some activities have to be stopped and sustainable ones should be ramped now and not putting new money for old solutions. So that, that does not bring us further. You just mentioned the car industry and then both of us are Germans and uh, Germany is a car country. Um, the car industry is uh, massively affected now by, by COVID-19. Um, we had the diesel crisis, diesel scandals. And uh, basically, when you think about it in a rational way, the, the car industry should now be interested massively to uh, switch the uh, to switch to renewables really quickly right otherwise the the electric cars don't make sense right um Ele electric cars are great but they have to be pushed into the market so just let's take the announcement of the largest car manufacturer in the world which is volkswagen they just recently was it in february in march uh, announced that their new platform for electric vehicles, which is this ID3, uh, should have a selling price not different to a combustion car. But we know the running cost of electric vehicle is lower than that of a combustion car, so that will be the killer application. Uh, however, currently you cannot yet buy it. But the point is, if there is a support for, for the automotive industry, from my point of view, it should be only for sustainable solutions. Yeah. And then they have to deliver. And maybe then they can even 
restructure the companies faster. So if you can sign now a contract that you can sell a sustainable car in half a year, it should be still fine for the company. And then they have to ramp up uh, their more sustainable solutions even faster because they're all in this in this transition phase in the companies, whether it's for Daimler, whether it's for BMW, whether it's for Volkswagen, there is no difference. Uh, and then they would have high growth in segments which are really sustainable and maybe more pressure in the segments which finally have no bright future anyway. Thank Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot. And another report was just published. It's the ITRPV uh, roadmap. Um, um, it's it's a roadmap for the for the solar industry. And uh, they this this uh, report also cited some of your your uh, research results. Um, um, how much PV production is we run right now? We have a pretty PV production capacity of around hundred. 100 gigawatts a year. So what's the forecast gonna look like for in 2030, 2050? Yeah. Uh, there is a huge range of numbers. It's the question whom you ask. So maybe first of all, this ITR PV uh, is really, really a great source of information uh, for PV. So quite many inf information slides, diagrams provided there have a more technical scope so how specific technologies and then shares of technologies develop. I think that's great reference for everyone who's interested more detailed in the industry. Uh, when it comes to the market outlook, so currently end of last year, we had 615 gigawatts installed capacity in the world. Right now, 100 to 120 gigawatts is installed, at least, how to say, pre COVID-19 crisis. Um, of course, this number will accelerate. If you ask really progressive people in the industry, then the question is how long it will take that we have 1,000 gigawatts of annual installation, so one terawatt. So you have now more and more discussion and papers uh, and they're about the so-called terawatt challenge. So if you take the numbers we find in our reports on a global scale, then we find numbers up to 20 terawatts in 2050, so 70 thousand gigawatts of installed PV capacity by 2050 would be roughly needed to have a fully sustainable energy system. But this would include uh, all the energy needed for what we call today the power sector, the heat sector, the transport sector. Transport includes vehicles on the road, of course also trains. Much of the railways are already electrified in the world, but more can be done. But then in particular, marine and aviation applications, so really how to get uh, at least sustainable fuels for aviation industry. But then, of course, we still have to talk on industry. So how to get a, a kind of a clean deal, how to get a clean chemical industry, if it can be clean ever, but at least on the, on, on the feedstock. Uh, and if you sum it all, all up and do a kind of a cost analysis, what will be least cost options? so that this entire system can be run on a minimum cost basis, then we would talk on up to 70,000 gigawatts of PV around 2050, but this will be not the end of the road because in 2050 around, we might be in the historic development of civilization where we have the highest annual change in additional energy demand. And the reason is if we do a good job, we stabilize around 10, 11 billion people on the planet. Right now we're around eight. Uh, billion people 
Uh, so two, three billion people more will come due to the fact we all get older. This is the one reason. And the other reason is we have still, of course, fast growing societies in developing and emerging countries. And there will be huge countries in the Sun Belt with enormous additional growth uh, also for energy around 2050, just think on, on India. India will have around 1.7 billion people in 2050 being the largest country now in two, three years from now on. Uh, talk on Indonesia, 300 to 400 million people, Pakistan, Bangladesh, Nigeria, Ethiopia. So these are all countries with 200, 300 million inhabitants. Uh, in 2050, and they're still, how to say, hungry for growth. And so due to that, 2050 is just a kind of a milestone uh, to get a sustainable energy system for all in the world. And of course, and this is important for our research, by the way, we only do not respect the Paris Agreement, the, 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 the ambitious target of the Paris Agreement with 1.5 degree, but also the sustainable development goals of United Nations. And that finally means all people on the planet should have the same rights. And that means all should have the opportunity to get on that development level, what we enjoy in OECD countries. Yeah, you, you talk about um, gigantic numbers uh, for solar PV, for solar photovoltaics, right? And uh, that takes a lot of area. Is there even enough area in Germany, Europe, the world? to uh, to realize your scenario what, what does it mean is there will there be solar on any every roof and all streets covered with solar or how, how does that look like your 100% renewable scenario yeah now let's let's talk on the limits to growth <laughs> uh, so luckily on the on from a global perspective there is enough area but there will be enormous push for high efficiency solar so i think this is now at least the third wave for going higher efficiency for higher efficiency in photovoltaics so the first wave was to get down the cost for solar cells for photovoltaic modules with higher efficiency because practically all of the costs scale with efficiency uh, the second wave was to get the so-called balance of system costs down so what is the mounting structure what is the cabling and of course some area needed and others uh, and the third wave will be exactly the area. So we are increasingly in regions where it makes really a difference whether society has to decide to spend 1% of the total area of the country or 2% of the total area of the country to get a sustainable domestic energy supply. Uh, luckily, from a global perspective, I think it's unrealistic that we need more than 1% of the global land area. However, there have been a great paper published last year in PNAS, which is one of the leading scientific journals in the world, where they talk on offshore photovoltaic applications. So we can have floating offshore photovoltaic systems running autonomously. This is all imaginable with today's technologies or technologies developed right now. The only what you need is excellent sunshine, practically no hurricanes, little waves. And then you can have autonomously floating PV systems and then converting electricity with water and air into fuels, into jet fuels, into chemicals. It could be converted to ammonia, to methanol, which is then in particular methanol, the new feedstock for chemical industry. And then it could be shipped, exported globally. And this is just a kind of a backstop if we don't want to go to have larger electricity harvesting 
for example, in desert regions or in, 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 in barren land. But to be honest, practically all mid-sized countries in the world could go for a sustainable 100% renewable energy supply on their own territory. And we do not talk of more than one or 2% uh, of the land area, which should be manageable if we consider for what we use today, uh, all our land, I think that should be, should be doable. And of course we have solutions with like floating PV, so we can have it on water, of course also on, on, on water surfaces on land. Uh, we can have so-called agro-PV, so integrate agricultural production and PV, that's possible. There we see more progress right now. Uh, and of course the rooftop should be filled and I'm, 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 I'm how to say, very convinced that what we see now with new legislation in California, now the same legislation or very similar legislation uh, is implemented in Hamburg, in Germany. That means new buildings from now onwards, or at least in two, three years, from now onwards, they have to cover their roofs with PV. There has to be sustainable energy supply in the skin of the building. It has not to be always on the roof. It can be also facades. We have new developments of, of integrated thin films in windows. So, so you can even dim your, 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 your window uh, in, in, in summertime to, to get less uh, solar light into the building, but you can even convert parts of that to electricity. So these are all innovations which will bring us further. Yeah, I think we need to uh, need to invite you a few more times to cover all those those areas in detail. <laughs> um, so we we just addressed uh, two reports. Um, that's one is the the Solar Power Europe uh, uh, report and the ITRPV uh, roadmap. And there's another forecast that is uh, usually catches the attention of many in the industry each year. That's the IEA um, energy scenario, right? And uh, I personally have a, uh, I don't know, you, you need to help me here, right? I think you're even involved in that because uh, basically the, the actual growth of the renewables is gigantic, of PV is gigantic, but the forecast from the IEA is usually just a flat line for the future, right? So there's a, um, what, what, do you know what I mean? So um, um, I... Uh, We've got a printout here. I don't know if you can see it too nicely, right? So the black line is the actual scenario, what's happening in the, pa in the, in the past. And those blue colorful lines are the forecast that is usually given at that point of time when it leaves the red black line by the IEA. So um, if I understand it correctly, and if this analysis is correct, then the forecast is usually totally off. And uh, the reason why I ask that, because the International Energy Agency, that's an um, agency where countries are actually members and then there's the big OECD uh, countries are members. And um, so I would assume that the forecast by such a council is very important for policymaking, right? So I wonder why the forecast is so off. Sure. Now it's difficult to answer so that I do not get sued in court. Um, to make it first of all simple, the, the diagram you have shown is really great. It's from Auke Hoekstra, uh, a colleague in the Netherlands, and it's a great diagram and it documents that for the last 20 years, the world energy outlook of the International Energy Agency is an ongoing story of continued failure. And that has to be made in that very clear words. 
So not a single year was, was right and it's wrong for 20 years. Now is the question why they are that wrong. Um, I can only speculate, no one knows it exactly. I guess in the end it's the fault of large countries and governments because it's an international governmental organization and obviously powerful countries do not use their power to stop these ongoing failures. Because if you do as an international governmental organization continued error since 20 years, then the analytic capabilities can be not that good. So this is just stating the facts. And then I would say if larger countries, governments would really force this international organization to really show performance, then we would get better reports. The problem is the world energy outlook is still a kind of a holy book. Uh, since every, practically everyone in the energy community knows such reports, but I know increasingly fast-growing communities all around the world that do not take it any more serious for renewables, in particular for solar, because it's known since 20 years it's simply wrong. Uh, why they are so wrong, I don't know. It has to do with scenario framing. It has to do with vested interests, of course. We know there are countries... <laughs> They're involved, they favor nuclear, other countries favor fossil fuels, uh, other countries don't push for renewables. So it's a mix of many things which are not really well established there. I guess what one should really point out is that Energy Agency has nowadays a really green communication. So when you, when you trace what is communicated during the last few years, then they, 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 they they clearly push for a transition in the energy world to be more sustainable, to be more renewable. However, this seems to be a kind of a communication strategy because in the reports you cannot find it. So the hard numbers are different from that, which is a really strange strategy. I don't know what are really the backgrounds, uh, but it may have ha have to do with trended, uh, with with wasted uh, or vested interests in the existing energy system. I don't know. Um, maybe large powerful government should really ask International Energy Agency, please present us a report uh, with 100% renewables by 2050 and as a new scenario, and let's discuss it and fully disclose assumptions. But what's also a problem, not all assumptions are disclosed. Uh, what are used for the report, so much is disclosed. So it's even better disclosed, by the way, than International Renewable Energy Agency, so IRENA. They have even a lower level than of transparency, which is not acceptable from my point of view. You never get numbers what really renewables cost in the IRENA report. You get such numbers for, for, from IEA, not for every year, but at least every few years you get some numbers. Then you can discuss whether the numbers are clever or not. Obviously not when it comes to the market because they failed for 20 years, but it's not that easy. However, let me also say there are also the bright spots. So the bright spots is there are, in the last few years have been excellent reports when it comes to power to x from IEA. It was not in the World Energy Outlook, but there was a great report last year, uh, for example, on hydrogen, uh, where you can really find good, good insights, also good cost for, for example, for electrolyzers. So really well done, uh, that kind of analysis. Um, and for example, there are different um, special technology programs from IEA. There is a photovoltaic program from IEA and they regularly uh, publish a really good trends report. So this is end of the year, uh, autumn or in, the, in Q4 a trends report, what happened the year before. 
in, in, in solar PV, there is early the year, so Q1, a kind of a snapshot, what have been the leading markets the year before, and this is the photovoltaic uh, systems program of the IEA, where really people dedicated, committed to photovoltaics uh, go for a different task there, and they do a really good job. So it's really hard to say there are many, many shades of gray <laughs> to have it in this wording when it comes to the IEA. <laughs> yeah, nice, nice way of putting it. Um, all right, let's let's go back to your institute. Um, what are so you you worked on that one hundred percent energy scenario? What are other cool results of your of your research recently that you which which could help in the in the energy transition? In the end, I think it's uh, it's small steps. You go step by step, so it's not this major new insight you suddenly get, but it's smaller pieces you accumulate step by step. First of all, what we get continuously as a result is 100% renewables is doable, technically, so it's, it's, it's technical feasible, what will be the right wording, it's economically viable. We have dozens of papers on that. Uh, so that is what you find all the, all, all the time. What maybe have been the most relevant insights for the last, let's say, one, two years is that there are two uh, strongly pushing, supporting technologies for PV. The one now, nowadays everyone knows, these are low-cost batteries, of course, because then we can overcome the day-night cycle. But what had been really surprising for me, even seeing our results now for years, but it was never so obvious then in the Solar Power Europe uh, report where we published it, is this enormous support uh, with power to x so power to x means low cost electricity transferred for the energy service demand in other sectors whether it's heat whether it's transport whether it's industry and this is mainly pushed by electrolyzers so we really have to talk on hydrogen and maybe i'm one of the <laughs> most authentic supporters for hydrogen and the reason is i wrote many papers for many years avoiding hydrogen at all uh, and the reason is the least cost option is always uh, a direct electrification when you can go for direct electrification. So electric vehicles, uh, direct heat with heat pumps, for example, uh, if, uh, or direct electricity in industry, if you can do that, this is always the best option, the least cost option. However, if that's due to, to technical limitations not possible anymore, then the standard route goes via hydrogen. And that you find for the chemical industry. So the, 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 the feedstock in chemical industry in future is ammonia and methanol. And it always starts with hydrogen. If we have sustainable steel, it's, it, it, it's a hydrogen reduction route. If we need long-term shipping and aviation for the marine and aviation sector, uh, then in the end, we have still hydrocarbon fuels, maybe ammonia, but still it's based on, on, hydrogen, uh, on hydrogen. And we need this very dense uh, energy carriers uh, to have the solutions there of a very high temperature processes. Not everything can be done with direct electricity. And then we need this hydrogen route. Hydrogen route nowadays, we get access to low-cost electrolyzers. Low-cost electrolyzers have then the beauty they lead to a low cost solution, even if they're used, let's say 3000 hours a year. And then the lion's share can come from solar photovoltaics. 
where you have maybe with bifacial PV single axis tracking in sunny regions, you can have 2,000, 2,500, even up to 3,000 bullet hours. So I heard about a one axis tracking PV plant in Atacama Desert in Chile, which is the best solar site on the planet, and they have 3,000 bullet hours. Uh, so this is the perfect match you can have then with low-cost electrolysis. But then you don't need further store, uh, storage technologies, batteries uh, to link photovoltaic and electrolysis because storing then hydrogen uh, maybe in underground coverns or other solutions is then a rather lower cost uh, storage option. And then the further conversion step, let's say to with fissure crops to synthetic fuels, or to methanol, to ammonia, such plants could be run close to baseload. That's possible if there is a hydrogen buffer in between, which is very often low cost. Uh, and we can use decades old technology, for example, in Europe, salt coverns uh, are, are a great opportunity. And this is then a strong push for a PV. So we, we talked about the, the, the uh, Lufthansa Air France uh, hit by COVID-19 earlier. And um, if they, um, how we can turn them green or if, if the, the money to be spent e either way after the or during the crisis now on, on those uh, on these industries, can it be uh, spent wisely? And uh, do you think there will be a future where there will be green air travel possible and, and how soon can that be? Yeah, that's, that's really complicated. So Is it the same, also... same engines just with a green fuel or how does green air travel look like? Yes and no. What do you think? So at least we know from, from Norway, they have a kind of a target, country target, that by 2040, uh, so which is 20 years from now, they have all electric flights uh, for um, within 500 kilometers range around Oslo, for example. So this is then a kind of a way we could go for uh, with all electric flights. Um, like that's batteries and electric engines. Yes, yes, yes. But okay. of course, we need better batteries where we have a higher energy density and so on. Yeah. And within so, the, uh, sorry, within what time frame is, is, is that target? Yeah, 20 years time. Maybe 20 years, years time within we 20 have years. such planes because we have startups, we have Airbus, Boeing yeah. uh, going for such projects. So there are even, you find research papers from, from people doing for decades research uh, on, on airplanes. And aviation, they say 100, 150 people in a plane, all electric is possible. And they show you on 20, 30 pages, what is, how to say, the blueprint, the sketch, how it could be done. We have such startups. Um, so let's, let's be positive on that. Uh, but of course, a long distance flight from, let's say, Frankfurt to Shanghai will be not all electric. So there we need a kind of a fuel uh, and I would say a kind of a sustainable fuel would be still the fuel we have today. So jet fuel, hydrocarbons, but that can be produced based on finally electricity, water and air. So what we need, uh, hydrogen from water with a standard electrolysis from, oil, from air, we can take the carbon and with low cost electricity, we can bring it to the right lengths of the hydrocarbon chains that we call it jet fuel. It will be not 100% sustainable, to be honest. And the reason are the conrails uh, in, in the higher altitude. So where we get then these white stripes uh, on the sky, because they finally also push um, 
global warming, they have a global warming potential, but the clean of the fuel, and of course, if the burning of the fuel itself would be, how to say, CO2 neutral, we could massively reduce the overall impact of aviation industry. And honestly, if, 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 if countries now take several billions, when we talk on five to 10 billions per larger carrier, uh, what we're currently talking on, um, why not having it as a package? That means, and by the way, in 15 years time or in, in whatever time frame, but maybe 15 years is realistic, uh, whatever fuel you burn is fossil free. Very simple. Yeah. And that can be done a simple legislation. You can have it in, in let's say, five to 10% point steps per year. You can say, okay, you start with 5% non-fossil fuel in the first year, then you have 15% or 12% or what else in the second year, and that you do for 10, 15 years. And after 15 years period, you have a fossil, fuel, fossil free fuel. And if you do such a legislation in entire Europe, then all flights from Europe or planes which are refilled in Europe have to take this fuel by simple regulation in the end. And this is, I think, also a COVID-19 learning. Neoliberalism does not work. In the end, the last man standing are the governments, are the countries, are we people all together. So we form the rules. And if we have a regulation which supports us in our survival mode, then we go for such regulation. This is man-made rules. So technology is available. And now we have to make sure that these rules are applied. And if we spend many billions in airlines, I think then it's the fair right uh, from, from this public money that we set rules and the rules are, and please do everything that in 15 years time, uh, it's a more or less sustainable business, or at least as close to that as technically possible. And by the way, it's not a target in 15 years time, we need annual milestone targets. And if they're not fulfilled, it gets punishment because this is finally what works with industry, uh, carrots and sticks. So the carrot is, there is a pathway that uh, allows you the survival mode, you as an industry, as a company. And if you don't fulfill it, then you get the sticks. This is finally how it works. But then you would need to protect your, let's say, domestic uh, carrier, right? Because if you have then uh, other countries or other carriers coming into, uh, let's say, France, which uh, don't have to follow that path. Um, it has to be European law, of course. So yeah. for single countries, it's nearly impossible. Yeah. But if you take the European Green Deal from, from the line for serious, then this is exactly now the perfect time to get it implemented, right? Yeah. Another... Uh, forecast from, from you the green deal um is a big thing right so europe is apparently ready to spend a lot of money and it can have a big impact on the whole world if if europe shows um that it's possible that somebody actually does it is it going to happen or is it going to be eaten up by plays in the in some corridors uh, some vested interest as you mentioned earlier when we talked about the iea for example It's in our hands, I would say. So we, the people, give the power to our decision makers. So we do it in elections. The young generation luckily goes for the more tougher solution. So they cry out loudly and that we have to redo as soon as possible. And those who are finally politicians, other decision makers in societies who are roadblocks, to be honest, it's good if they go into their retirement. So we need, we need decision makers, and not only in policy, in all, 
in all societal communities, in business, in industry, investors, in religious groups, uh, they all have to go for uh, responsible decision-making and those who are not able or not willing to, please uh, give free way for those who wanna fix the survival strategy. I think this is what we can do and we as the people can make sure for that. We can talk to others, we can encourage our kids to really give more, more pressure. Uh, and finally, we all go for elections and that there we should take our responsibility for it. Mm. Wonderful closing. Um, I've got a hell lot of more questions <laughs> to ask, but uh, we are well above one hour. So I, uh, if you don't mind, I'd like to finish here. It's been a pleasure talking to you, Christian. Um, it's great to see that you haven't lost any of your energy back then when we met the first time. And it's, uh, it's been fascinating to listen to your, to your research, to your results and the, the, the positive uh, outlook that you, uh, that you gave. So all the best and uh, stay in touch and hope to see you here soon again. Many thanks. It had been a pleasure to talk to you and maybe in a later point in time, we have again the chance to talk on, on other aspects we had not the time today so it would be a pleasure and great and for those who have further questions so i'm well accessible in a in a in a web research so just send me an email and then i try to give answers yeah wonderful and many thanks for the interview yeah thanks a lot bye bye